Well, thank you for joining us for the third week of our Hope Lives series, which we're calling Table Talk. And as you can see, I am joined at the table today uh, by Patty Crowick, um, because the two of us want to have a conversation, as you may have gathered from the video we just watched about truth and reconciliation. So let me just take a minute to introduce uh, Patty to you. Patty um, has a husband named Gary and has three adult children, Ben and Max and Sam. Um, she, you at one time attended Southridge, right? You and your family for a period of time and your parents, of course, still come. Yes. And our beloved volunteers in the shelter, among other places. Um, and now you attend Chippewa Presbyterian. Yes. Right? Yeah, we moved to Niagara Falls. Yeah. So, so that's wonderful. Patty has a podcast called Medicine of the Resistance, Medicine for the Resistance. Um, she blogs at uh, Danish. .ca, and you can go and find all of her resources there. She runs a nonprofit foundation, but you're going to have to help me with the pronunciation. Nikanagana. Nikanagana Foundation, which collects and redistributes money in peer-to-peer -peer reparations uh, um, between settlers and indigenous communities and people. And you've been a friend to Southridge and to our good relatives team um, working with them as we learn to listen and learn from indigenous people and become good relatives to our neighbors. But more importantly, you're an Ojibwe woman who yes. loves Jesus. Yes. And most foundationally for me, you're a good friend of mine and you've taught me a lot. And I'm glad that we get to do this. I mean, and that really goes both ways. I think we have talked about that, how much I have learned from you and appreciated the perspective yeah. that you have given me in some really important times. And I think mostly our friendship is based on book recommendations. I think so, <laughs> yes. I think so. But you, you've told me you've been on a journey in the last couple of years. You grew up in a white Christian home yeah. um, and have been on a journey of reintegrating or, or rediscovering your indigenous identity, the indigenous part of your identity. Talk to me a little bit about that journey. Yeah, um, and I've been thinking more about relationship than identity mm. because mm. identity is often so focused on me and how I see myself um, rather than the relationships that I'm in right. and the relationships that um, that are important to me and some of the relationships that, that are imposed on me, right? Like I get born into this family and into this community and, you know, not all of those relationships are you know, are chosen by me, but I have responsibilities to them. Yeah. And so when I think about reconnecting with my Indigenous community, that means my Ojibwe family, you know, my paternal family that I didn't know when I was growing up. I knew they existed, but I didn't know them. That means reconnecting with the Indigenous community down here that I didn't even know. I didn't even know I was surrounded yeah. by Indigenous community yeah. growing up because, you know, in the 70s, you know, in the 60s, 70s, because now I'm old, um, you know, in the <laughs> 60s and 70s, we weren't as visible. And, and, you know, so reconnecting with that community and finding my place among them has been has been really important. And then placing that in the context of my church community yeah. and my church family and just kind of figuring out where I sit in the middle of all of these sometimes competing responsibilities and expectations has been yeah has been really the work of the last few years yeah in particular and i think it gives you a really unique vantage point on the conversation that we want to have today about bringing you're bringing those relationship communities together within yourself but your work is also about bringing them together 
in the real world too. And right. so when we, when we talked about having this conversation, you were the one who said, I said, would you talk to our community about this? And you were like, can I talk about Isaiah chapter six? I love Isaiah. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to read a few verses uh, out of Isaiah chapter six that have formed the framework of our conversation. It says this, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord seated on a high and exalted throne, the edges of God's robe filling the temple. Winged creatures were stationed around God. Each had six wings, and with two they veiled their faces, with two their feet, and with two they flew about. And they shouted to each other, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, or that's God's name, is Yahweh of heavenly forces. All the earth is filled with God's glory. The door frame shook at the sound of the shouting and the temple was filled with smoke. And I said, Isaiah says, mourn for me, I'm ruined. I'm a man with unclean lips and I live among a people with unclean lips. And yet I've seen the Lord or the King, Yahweh of heavenly forces. Um, you felt like this passage, that moment where Isaiah captures this vision of God. It's a, a vision that um, we've talked about as a community in the last little while. Isaiah sees the God who is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, but not leaving those guilty of injustice unpunished. That's how God describes God's self to Moses. And Isaiah catches this vision of this God and it's like a revelatory moment for him. And you thought that was a really profound picture of um, the moment that I think we all need. Yeah, and I think, because I've been thinking about that a lot, particularly in the context of what we're going to talk about. And I mean, if some people are are Indigenous, then some people are, are not Indigenous. And those people would be, you know, settlers. My, um, you know, that language is often used because they settled here and kind of imposed their own way of being on, on Indigenous people. And, you know, my grandparents, my mom's side of the family, who would be migrants, you know, came fleeing, you know, Stalin and... You know, I'm finding safety in this country that that made my father's family unsafe. Yeah. It still makes Indigenous people unsafe. And so I've been thinking about that throne room moment and what has kind of shifted for Canadians. Because I don't, because what appalled Isaiah was not what he saw in the throne room. Right. It was how what he saw shifted how he how he changed how he saw everything else. And I think for Canadians. I mean, we've always been here, right? Residential schools have been a part of Canada for, for a long time. The reserve the system has been a part of Canada for a very long time. You know, so it's not like these things are brand new information. But something shifted in the Canadian imagination. And, and I think some of that happened with Idle No More when, you know, we took to the streets. Right, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. You know, because Harper had those omnibus bills and, and Indigenous people were, you know, rightly concerned, not only about what those bills would do to their communities, but but Canadian communities. Mm -hmm. You know, like, it, this isn't just about us. This is, if we're unsafe, everybody's unsafe, yeah, yeah, yeah. really. Um, and, and so that moment where we took to the streets and we danced and it was... It's like, sure, you're going to do all of this stuff to us. And what did we do? We dance. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It was just this beautiful moment of reminding Canada that we were still here. And so when when other things came up, you know, like the graves that were found over the course of the summer um, at, the, at the different residential schools, graves that had been mentioned in the Truth and Reconciliation Report, and yet people were still surprised. Yeah. Um, 
I think Canadians were more primed to see that sympathetically. And, but even so, it was still not a woe is me moment because people are like, well, but I didn't do that. I'm yeah. very sad for that terrible thing that happened yeah, that yeah, those other yeah. people did. And that was really sad. Um, you know, so it wasn't really the same kind of moment, but I think it's, I think it was really generative because we're having a lot more of these kinds of conversations now. And I think Canada got a glimpse of us as something other than victims in the context of what we found because they had that memory of us being being something better and I'm losing my train of thought <laughs> <laughs> no because uh, but I appreciate what you're saying like this text struck you because Isaiah sees a picture of what God is like and can immediately recognize how different he has been yes um and his, how different his community has been. And I think it, you've mentioned it before, and I think it's important that we, we struggle, I think sometimes as a white person, I struggle almost with my whiteness because I feel implicated by whiteness because I am white and I am male and I'm all sorts of things that have given me privilege mm -hmm. in this community, but I'm not responsible for the things that happened. And so I find that I want to say, yeah, those people did bad things, um, but I haven't been a part of that. So I'm sorry that those things happen, but the instinct is to kind of take a step back and say, but that wasn't me. And so I'm not responsible. I'm not implicated. And you said Isaiah's instinct was completely different. Right. Because, and, and I hear that from people, I mean, like you've mentioned, I'm pretty active, I'm active on social media and other forums talking about this. And I'll hear from people as, you know, they're tired of feeling guilty for being white. Yeah. I didn't do these things. It's not my fault that I was white. And as well, but you being white isn't the problem. Yeah. It's the fact that we live in a world that makes it easier for you being white. That, you know, you're less likely to be followed around in stores. Yeah. That, yeah, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe you don't have a great life. Maybe you don't have all of the money. When we think of privilege, we tend to think of Elon Musk and Bill Gates. Right. Right. Yeah. But, you know, so I, I'm not sure that the language of privilege is that helpful anymore. Um you know, a friend of mine explained it like the lower, like a lower difficulty level on yeah. a video game. You know, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That you're not, it's not that you're not going to have hardships and side quests and obstacles to get over, but being white isn't one of the things that's making it harder right. because we forget, you know, we think of these racial categories as just some kind of social thing that somebody came up with, but we forget that they were actual legal categories mm, that mm. people had to, you know, whether you could own property or be property. And Indian is still a legal category, yeah, yeah. right? That's determined by how much blood quantum you have, which, yeah. I mean, like, how do you even prove Canadian citizenship based on blood quantum? It makes yeah. no sense. Yeah. yeah. But Indian, Indigenous people, we, it's still a legal category that yeah. we have to contend with. And so when Isaiah gets confronted with the reality of God, and the glory, and he sees these people that he's just been screaming at for five chapters. You know? Mm -hmm. you know, he's just been, he's a man of unclean lips, but even so, he was still prophesying and, and speaking on behalf of God. So he doesn't say, oh, Israel, boy, are you going to get it now? Because I've just yeah. seen how great God is. He immediately sees himself. Yeah. And all of a sudden realizing for you know the first time in these six chapters that I am also part of this. Yeah. I am a man of unclean lips and I am among a people of unclean yeah. lips. And what are we going to do? Yeah. What are we going to do? I am a, I am a person. I, I love 
that contrast because Isaiah has been prophesying for five chapters. He's been speaking with his lips on behalf of God, right? And yet he says, I'm a person of unclean lips. It didn't, his guilt, his being implicated in the behavior of his community, it didn't totally define who he was. Like he was, could still be used by God and so on. And yet he was willing to look around and say, I see what my community is doing. By virtue of the fact that this is my community, I am a part of this, whether I've benefited mm -hmm. from it or whatever, um, I am a part of this. And therefore, this is also, this is still my responsibility. You used a super helpful analogy with me because you, you were talking about legal categories. And there were, you know, there have been legal systems in place that turn up the difficulty on the video game for Indigenous mm -hmm. people, right? Legal systems that turn down the difficulty for people like me. And, and a lot of those systems are changing. Mm -hmm. um, residential schools are now all closed and, and that kind of thing. Um, but you said to me, um, we're talking about the speed limit on the highway, mm -hmm. right? And on the QEW between St. Catharines and Hamilton now, the speed limit's 110. But just because you raise the number from 100 to 110 and change the law, that doesn't mean people's behaviors change, right? right? There were some people who buzzed through and drove 130 no matter what the sign said. And there are some who used to drive 100 and now drive 110 and have conformed to the new situations. And there are others who drove 100 before and drive 100 now because that's the way it's always been and why should I change? And you compared that to living in the systems that privilege some people have had ahead of others. Talk about it that right. a little bit. Well, because the laws can change, indigenous ceremonies are no longer illegal, right? Like yeah. we can now dance, we can have sweat lodges, we can dress how we like, we can believe, learn, your language learn our languages, we can believe what we want. Those things are no longer illegal. But it wasn't that long ago, it was within my father's lifetime yeah. that these things that these things were illegal. And you can change the laws, but you're not changing how people think. And yeah. so the people who grew up in that time where these things were considered wrong and pagan and non-Canadian and all yeah, of that. Yeah. I mean, these people still raise children, right? Like yeah. we still raise children. We still teach. We still, you know, there's still police officers and training police officers and judges and raising up judges. And so there's still a lot of, that's why these racial categories that are no longer legal still have so much social power yeah. because people's thinking hasn't shifted. And, and so much of that embeds some of even like the church and the way we think, the way we read texts and the way we think about what it means to be a Christian in this world. And for me, that was also kind of my Isaiah moment yeah. was as I embraced my, you know, indigenous relatives and relationships and recognized my responsibilities to them and, you know, kind of worked through those relationships, my place in that community, I had that real moment of thinking I had to choose yeah. because I was feeling that real disconnect between the church and the indigenous community. And there's a, a big disconnect between them and feeling that I had to choose. And that's like Isaiah in the throne room was a moment of choice. He had to choose yeah. who he was going to be. He was faced with all of this and shown everything and he had to choose. And I chose to be Ojibwe. And I knew in that moment that that was going to be a profound choice, that there was no coming back from yeah, that. Yeah. Um, and whenever we make choices, we don't always fully understand right. the implications, yeah. Yeah. right? Like yeah. we're making the best decision we can at the time. To me, it felt like the inevitable decision. I, 
um, like Isaiah, you don't feel like you have any other real choice because now you're faced with all of this truth. And I think embracing, learning from, entering the Indigenous community and going to ceremony and learning has allowed me to see and understand my relationship with the church differently. It's allowed me to read the text differently. It's allowed me to get to a point where I don't feel that choosing to be Ojibwe necessarily means I have to leave the church. I can see possibility in the text of Isaiah and the words of Jesus. I can see I can see this kingdom all around yeah. me, and it's allowed me to illuminate it in really transformative ways. Which, which is an essential part of the text, right? So, so we as a community have been trying to catch a vision of who God is, like Isaiah mm-hmm. did. I think we as a community are beginning to imperfectly catch a glimpse of what that means for who we as Canadians have been. Um, to the detriment of the indigenous peoples, how we have not, maybe not directly participated, though in some ways made with attitudes and actions and behaviors and words participated in those structures of discrimination, but at the very least are implicated because we've been advantaged by those systems for those of us who are white and and settlers and so on. But that moment of seeing who God is and seeing who we are and internalizing that actually leads to a moment of opportunity. So I'm going to read the next section of the text because you pointed this out to me. In Isaiah 6, verse 6, it says, Then one of the winged creatures flew to me, holding a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is departed and your sin is removed. And then I heard the Lord's voice saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, I'm here, send me. There's this moment, like Jesus says, right? When you know the truth, the truth can set you free. And this was a knowing moment for Isaiah, knowing something about God, knowing something about who he has been, who his community has been. And it was a moment of painful truth, right? Like a fire hot, glowing coal touched against your lips. But it was also a transformative moment, and it created the opportunity for Isaiah to then become a part of the redemptive solution of the problem of the people that he'd been preaching about for five chapters. Mm -hmm. And he said, God says, who can I send to bring some change? And Isaiah said, bring me, send me, I'll Mm -hmm. do that. What is, what's our send me moment? How can we be sent? Hmm. Well, for me, okay, the moment of truth when the coal touches your lips and you realize, uh, I think that's more because you've already realized the coal is the the release from it. Mm. It's like, okay, because there are, like you said, there are things that we participate in actively and there are things that we participate in passively. Like, don't tell me that your church wasn't involved in residential schools. Tell me what your church said to oppose them. Mm, mm, You you mm. know, it's... Because if you weren't actively opposing it, then you were passively accepting it as status quo. And then if that's the harm, if that's the harm you did, then that shapes the yeah. way you can transform it. Yeah. Like if the harm was the loss of indigenous language, was the loss of children from their homes, was the loss of land, then the work that you can do is, well, how do I make sure that doesn't happen in yeah. the future? Yeah. How, do I, how do I help indigenous people to restore? And so for me... 
when I entered the Indigenous community, when I returned to it, I was fully Canadian, right? I'd grown up in the church, grown up surrounded with by my white family, didn't I thought all the Native people were out west somewhere. I had no idea <laughs> that there were two reserves within an hour and a half yeah, yeah. Uh, of where I lived. And so when I entered the Indigenous community, it wasn't with any intention to teach them anything yeah. or bring them. I had I had nothing to offer them. I had no good news for the yeah. Indigenous community. But they had good news for me. And they had things to teach me. Yeah. And then I took those things. So my send me is I took those things back to my other relatives who didn't know these right. things. So I'm taking them into the church. I'm taking them back to my family. I took them into the workplace. And I think that's what Christians who, you know, congregations who want to be good relatives to Indigenous people enter our communities in that way mm-hmm. as people with things to learn, mm-hmm. searching for the kingdom of God. Jesus said the kingdom of God is here. He yeah. didn't he didn't try to impose it. He didn't, you know, we, we're just talking about that, you know, in, in a book club, amen, that, you know, he didn't show up and be this kind of Roman crushing Messiah that some people wanted. And yet the church often enters communities in that way. Yeah. Instead of looking for the kingdom of God that Jesus says is here and among us, you know, we kind of enter in. And so we enter in and we learn and then take that learning back to wherever you are. Yeah. Take that learning back to your workplace. Do you sit on the board of a charity? Well, find somebody. (laughs) Find somebody. I would say find one person to disrupt with. Find somebody that can align with you and then shift the direction where you're on a board or where you're in a workplace. And you can bring, how does this policy affect the Indigenous people that are, that are our clients? Because whatever business you're in, we're your clients. We're everywhere. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. And not just in social services, but we're buying stuff too. So, yeah. you know, so and, and it's shifting that view. I remember Sean um, saying once in, in an early conversation. Sean Vanderclis. Yeah, yeah, in an early conversation with the uh, Becoming Good Relatives was to come out to the Friendship Center and get to know us as beautiful, vibrant people who have jobs and buy stuff, yeah. not just as clients who are in need. Yeah. But that's valid too. Yeah. And that's what my nonprofit seeks to do is, yes, it's important to meet people's material needs and to keep heads above water. That's hugely important. But until we do something about these systems, large and small, that's all we're ever going to be doing. Yeah. And that's not transformative. I think, you've, I think you've put your finger on a couple of things that have been striking for me when we've talked the one is to name that instinct that says, well, I didn't run any residential schools, sort of names half of the sin problem, mm-hmm. right? That what have been called sins of commission, things you did mm-hmm. that you shouldn't have done. But there's a whole other category of sins called sins of omission, things that you left undone that should have been done in the name of love, in the name of Jesus, right? And I think to say, in what ways could we have participated in these things not happening and to realize that we didn't, Mm -hmm. that's an uncomfortable reality. That is that sort of burning moment of, oh, this truth really stings. And you've told me, and I think this is important for us to realize, you've told me it's important to sit in that discomfort a little bit, that you still fight the urge to relieve Mm -hmm. people of discomfort. Mm -hmm. And I know, I mean, partly for me, it's not knowing how to talk about these things well necessarily, but but we've created discomfort in our community, but you would say that's a good thing. Yes. And I mean, 16 years of social work, it never got easier. Letting people sit in discomfort, the consequences of their choices, sometimes with just plain loss or feeling bad 
about, and sometimes I think it's okay to feel bad about what we've done. You know, I think in my own life of times where I feel really bad about things I've done and harms that I've committed and it doesn't matter that I had good intentions yeah. or that I thought I was serving God or, or didn't that I, know any better or I, at the time yeah, or whatever. That, none, that those things may matter in terms of how I approach the change I bring to those things, yeah. but it doesn't change the harm that I did. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, you know, when I think of harms, I mean, like I grew up with James Dobson, right. And that whole crowd and thinking that, you know, and that was kind of my whole world for a long time. And, so I think about my relationship now with the queer community and I work to listen and to include their voices on my podcast and not just to talk about being queer because I'm sure that gets so tiresome to be like I don't want to be around talking about being native all the time either like Um, you are right now like I am right now (laughs) but this was my idea so what was your idea but also my idea um but yeah I mean sometimes we just talk about books right like we don't always talk about what it's like to be a native woman in Niagara sometimes we just talk about this great book I read that has nothing to do with that so I'm the harms I've done I feel really bad about but they shape my response they they help me say okay so and maybe that's amends from 12 steps I don't know but maybe that just that helps me understand what my role is in transforming harm because I didn't mean to yeah but that doesn't change the fact yeah. that I caused harm. So, you, so you, we become aware, we feel the discomfort, and then it prompts that sort of send me response. And you've alluded to some already. Talk about uh, a little bit about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, because that's how we currently talk about this in our country, that there are calls to action and that there are specific calls to action for the church to participate in. Um, in what ways, what would you say about our opportunity to participate in those calls to action. The TRC calls to action don't really apply to individuals. They apply to, uh, like for like as far as the church goes. Um, the, the calls to action are about communities yeah. and kind of collectives. So it's talking about broadly education and broadly the legal system and, and then broadly to churches. And, and so there's one where they're, they're talking about apology. So with, uh, for the church, it has to do with apology, the education of congregations, the education of potential clergy, and permanent funding for Indigenous people. And apology is that moment of being appalled, of realizing what you've done. And maybe as as an individual Christian or even as a church, it's not your place to make these grand apologies, but that can still shape how you react. I'm very sorry I did this thing, and so I'm going to, or I'm very sorry that I contributed to this thing, or I'm very sorry I didn't even know about this thing. And so this is what I'm, you know, and so these are the steps that I'm going to do to make sure that these harms, that these harms stop. It's recognizing I'm a people of unclean lips and working to restore education. So education of congregations can be book clubs and workshops. I'm a big fan, as yes, you've alluded, of book, co- book clubs and workshops. I love talking about books. I've built like a whole sub stack around putting books in conversation with each other yes. and seeing seeing kind of what what happens. But it's also about how we see each other in the text. Mm. Like Erna Hackett talks about Christians having Disney princess syndrome, mm. right? They're always poor, beleaguered Israel, never invading Babylon, yeah. Right. They're always, you you know, the Christian church under persecution, never Rome. Right. Never the ones imposing 
oppressive structures. Right, because because we want to think of ourselves. Yeah. We don't want to think of ourselves as the people who are causing harm. Yeah. We want to. It, it's much easier, and I think about that in myself too. Because on the one hand, I've got my maternal family who came and settled lands that Indigenous people were displaced from. And on the other, I've got my paternal family who was displaced. And so which lineage do I claim? Do yeah. I tell my grandmother that she doesn't matter because only Lula matters? Yeah. Do yeah. I tell my mom that her connection to land and gardening isn't good enough because it comes from Germany? Of course not. That's the combination of these women, these ancestors that I have, and you know, and and the men, the grandfathers that I have, combine in me in beautiful ways. These are mm -hmm. beautiful legacies to hold on to, but they also kind of shape my responsibilities to this place, yeah. and to how and to how I see myself, and how I see myself when I when I read the text. Um, you, you know, so it's about so education of congregations is also about how how we learn to see ourselves in the text and how we learn to understand who we are. Because Israel still exists. The Jewish people still exist. So mm -hmm. when we always see ourselves as poor beleaguered Israel. It's like we're, we're taking their place. And I, I don't think that's necessary. I don't think that's fair. Um, and then for education uh, of clergy, I think I asked um, once a, a regional counselor what we could do to help her. Um, in the work that she was doing. And she said we could show up for her. Mm. We could provide cover for her. And I think as part of the TRC recommendation for educating clergy, that's how congregations and churches and individual Christians can show up for their leaders, is you're initiating, you personally are initiating some really challenging conversations for Christians to have. Um, and I do it too, but I can deke out of those conversations anytime I like. <laughs> I can just block, mute, stop showing up. You know, I, I, they're not as costly for me as, as they would be for somebody in authority to be having. And so part of educating pastors can even be supporting you and letting you know that, yeah, that was really hard, but I appreciated it. Yeah. Um, because I'm sure you hear a lot of that was really hard and I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes. But, but, you know, but that part of education of making sure that we, that we're willing to listen mm. as our, as our pastors and our leaders take us down, you know, sometimes some, some really challenging roads. And so you, you play that role for me a lot of educating clergy. You, you feed that for me a lot and it shapes the kind of conversations we have here. So I think it's really it's fantastic. Neat. Yeah, that's really neat. <laughs> <laughs> and then, well, and then my book is part of that too. My book is all. My editor keeps asking me, you know, who's your audience? Who's your audience? And I guess it's, well, it's mostly white Christians. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, because send me. Yeah. I grew up in it. I understand the language. I understand the most conservative part of the theology because I I didn't just grow up in like a mainstream church. I grew up right in the heart of evangelicalism. So I understand the conservative theology yeah. and I understand how insular it can be and how safe it can feel. I understand that. And sometimes I get nostalgic for it. Life was safer, smaller yeah. back then. Yeah. And clearer, cleaner, clearer, and cleaner. Yeah. But the kingdom of God is so huge and beautiful yeah. and expansive. Yeah. And there's so much, good news out there like mm -hmm. that's Isaiah ends up he does like he he starts in the throne room and he ends up you know how yeah. beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news he yeah. freedom for captives release from prisoners and and it just it's just so inevitable and, and and all of the at the end of the book of Isaiah 
the nations, the picture of all the nations together being in the presence of God. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, I think that's, that's the goal and that's the hope behind this conversation is that on the one hand, we can learn and listen and be confronted with those. This is what God is like. This is what we've been like. Those two, two mm. things don't align. Um, woe is me. Woe is us kind of moments to, to experience the kind of truth that sets us free. But then to respond by saying, okay, God, send me. Send me back to my own community. Send me back to my own people. Send me to listen and to learn from indigenous communities and to carry that back to my own people so that we can learn to um, live together as communities in a way that works towards that ultimate vision of all, you know, the nations living in harmony and unity in the presence of God. Mm -hmm. And I am so thankful for the role that you've played in that for me and for our community. And uh, I just appreciate you being willing to do this this morning. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciated you having me. That was fun. <laughs> <laughs>